Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Well, hello, and welcome to the September 2019 version of our series on FCC enforcement. I'm Steve Augustino from Kelly Dry. And I'm Brad Currier from Kelly Dry. And if you listen to this, you know we are the enforcement guys. So we're going to handle one of our, um, r- our regular monthly updates on FCC enforcement actions. Uh, this month's podcast, I think, is going to be a little bit different from last month, um, mostly because almost immediately after we recorded the August podcast the and started referring to the FCC having merely kind of maybe a dog day slowdown. We talked a lot about the FCBA's Enforcement Bureau uh, brown bag rather than actual items that came out that month. Um, almost immediately as we said that, Brad, right? What happened? Yeah. Days later, we saw a slew of items starting to come out that we knew that we'd have to get ready to do another update for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So we started planning right away on that. And we're going to run through those topics in this episode today. That's going to include um, the first standalone cramming violation of Rosemary Harold's tenure at the, at the Enforcement Bureau, um, a rare proposed fine for failure to adhere to an FCC consent decree, some more enforcement actions for causing interference to licensed operations, and some emergency alert tone actions that garnered broader headlines uh, because of the they all involved commercial TV broadcasts. So um, you may have seen some of those uh, given the nature of the shows that were involved there. Um, so it's a pretty big in, agenda in and of itself. Uh, but Brad, I want to start off by noting that you know there's really one thing that's missing from that agenda that's almost always on ours. In fact, I, I think I might have said before we're kind of required, I think, to talk about this topic. So I'm going to hit it out right away, right? Um, and the topic, of course, is pirate radio. Yes. For right. once, we're going to be able to skip over a discussion of pirate radio for this one. We got enough on our agenda for today. Okay. All right. No pirate radio this time. All right. Um, so before we do all of that, what I want to talk about is a um, an interesting development that we've started to see. And Brad and I have had conversations in the hallway about this. And so we thought we'd bring it up on the podcast here, um, which is this growing trend, really, of letters and requests that are coming from individual commissioners. Right. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about commissioners sort of taking enforcement into their own hands and launching investigations or inquiries on their own sort of about their particular sort of pet topics. Right, right. So it's not commission action per se. It's individual commissioner letters, but it tends to get a lot of uh, a lot of attention. And I want to start, you know, just kind of set this off, right? It's It's not that unusual for commissioners to release statements or release letters from time to time. In fact, we've seen some of those in the past, but there are some recent actions that are a little bit different that kind of bring it into this enforcement podcast. So why don't you 
you set the stage for all of us. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, commissioners have long used their position as a soapbox to bring attention to potential enforcement issues or to gather information from targets. Now, sometimes not targets. It's basically asking industry observers or associations for data that they have that may then later inform enforcement-directed inquiries. Now, you often see this with commissioners while they're in the minority who may be looking to sort of name and shame entities without specific allegations of noncompliance. And we've seen this from really all of the commissioners. So we've seen this with now Chairman Pai for Lifeline. We've seen it with Commissioner O'Reilly regarding payola most recently, but also the diversion of 911 fees, and also with Commissioner Starks about mobility fund data. And again, these aren't direct accusations necessarily of wrongdoing, but really collecting information with the idea that maybe there might be noncompliance involved. Right, right. And there are actually, even in robocall, there have been a couple of those, uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel and Commissioner Starks, all saying, hey, when are you going to be adopting Shake and Stir? Are you going to be offering blocking for free? You know, kind of a little bit, as you said, sort of that public shaming has been, seemed like the intent of those ones. Right. Um, but these two, these are different. And we're going to go through three examples of letters that kind of moved into a different realm from those areas and really started... What we think, um, entering into the enforcement realm, if you will, you know, it's kind of very pointed questions about very specific situations. Yeah, these are letters sent with the underlying context of here are the rules and here's information that may indicate those rules are not being followed. Right, right. And so, so let's dig in. So, so the first one I want to start with is um, E-rate, E-rate overbuilding. Um, and as some background, this has been an issue for Commissioner Michael O'Reilly for some time. He has highlighted in many different situations his disagreement with the E-rate funding rules, I'll submit, um, that allow funding for dark fiber or self-provision fiber networks um, in a situation where there are existing fiber networks uh, offered by commercial entities. And and he's asked questions about that in the past, and, and some of these fall in that first category. For example, um, back in March, he asked USAC a number of questions about E-rate overbuilding, and USAC responded to that in April with a letter that really um, indicated that the E-rate rules prohibit funding for duplicative ser- services, but it doesn't necessarily or explicitly ban overbuilding. What USAC had said in that letter was, well, we really look at um, the rule is is it is it cost effective? Is the overbill is the self provision network the most cost effective version um, of that? And that's kind of where they left it. Right. And so this ends up getting picked up in an August 26 letter from Commissioner O'Reilly to an Arizona school district alleging what he called wasteful and duplicative spending of E-rate funds to self-provision broadband network for schools and areas that are already receiving support. Now, the contract in that instance was awarded to a relatively new entrant that will be overbuilding existing fiber networks or leasing capacity from existing providers. 
Now, the commissioner claimed that the funding is going to be used for ineligible areas and that some of the costs involved far exceeded reasonable estimates. Now, he requested responses to a series of detailed questions. I think that's a good thing to emphasize there because that shows some of the differences we're talking about from prior letters or prior inquiries. This, the, the questions and the way that they're asked are the kinds of questions that you would see in an enforcement inquiry, like a letter of inquiry, where you're asking about questions as they relate to specific rules and compliance with them. Detailed financial information, detailed planning documents, and you're also asking for documentation. Right, right. Yeah, and it, it was, I agree with you, it was very LOI-like, this particular letter. Um, and, you know, there are a couple things that we're going to talk about some of the procedures and questions a little bit later, but I want to stick with the, the E-rate topic for just a moment. Um, you know, there's some real questions because it's not clear that the things that Commissioner O'Reilly is asking about are even violations in the first place. Right. What, as you just mentioned, I mean, he has asked questions to USAC before about how this process works. I mean, how funding for these types of projects gets approved. And USAC came back with their answer that while you cannot pay for duplicative services, the how you're going to construct a network to deliver services is a little different. And if it's m the most cost-efficient path is to overbuild parts of a supported network, at least the way that USAC responded, that doesn't necessarily indicate that you're automatically funding duplicative services. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, ordinarily, this is the kind of thing that you would address in rules. And, and actually, I, among the papers I brought with me today um, – and setting this up was the separate statement from Commissioner O'Reilly in the rural telehealth item from August in which he said, you know, hey, look, I'm glad that we're not importing some of these concepts from E-rate over into rural telehealth because I have concerns there and I'm looking forward to addressing those in a rulemaking proceeding. Um, yeah, nevertheless, we've got this letter out there um, as well, which kind of raises some questions. And the other thing that struck me about this was that um, the nature of those questions were arguably the kinds of things that USAC already looks at or should look at in reviewing the funding application and determining whether or not it, it is um, consistent with the rules. Um, so there's a little bit of concern I have just about duplication of effort here. Right. I think that's absolutely a concern to have. Again, most of these letters in the past, they've been asking sort of broad industry segments, let's talk about the rules and how they work. Here it's a letter to a specific school district saying, what are you doing, you specifically, to comply with these rules? And that's sort of the shift that you and I are talking about here, where it's going from less investigatory to more enforcement type. Right, right. Okay. And, it, and it's, not, it's not just Commissioner O'Reilly. We're not picking on him. In fact, I'm going to move on to topic two, which is educational broadcast services. And that's a different commissioner that's been interested in that topic. Sure. So we're going to now move the uh, spotlight over to Commissioner Carr here. And just a little bit of background. The educational broadband service basically is spectrum, uh, mid-band spectrum in the 2.5 gigahertz range. It's basically been put aside for educational purposes. Now, the rules and how they actually are, are actually fairly complicated. But the upshot of this is that it is possible to lease 
aspect of the spectrum for commercial use, but you need to retain certain dedicated educational uses of the spectrum. And so what we have here is Commissioner Carr in a series of July and August letters to, edu to EBS licensees basically asking questions about the use of their spectrum lease profits for non-educational purposes, including political advocacy. Now, the commissioner alleged that the licensees failed to meet their obligations to dedicate part of that spectrum to educational use. And this all comes up with the background of the FCC ongoing process to free up this EBS spectrum uh, to facilitate more commercial use. Right. In fact, if if I'm not mistaken on this, this arose in an unusual way because I think the first time I heard about it, at least, was when Commissioner Carr tweeted, hey, this stuff is going on and I've launched an investigation. And there were a series of tweets that went out at that point. Yeah. I mean, the commissioner stated that he launched the investigation based on his own research and some media reports. And one thing that we're going to talk about when we talk about the process here is that um, you know, much like a letter of inquiry that comes from the Enforcement Bureau, these letters aren't necessarily public unless the commissioner makes them public. And here, as you said, went through the, we'll just say, alternative mechanism of screenshotting some of the letters and putting them up as tweets. So, Right, right. So, you know, so we saw a little bit about this. So when you come and look at the implications of this particular one, there's a couple of things. And, and the first one flows from that last comment, which is we don't really have a lot of visibility into what the information was, what the allegations are, and, and and we haven't, to my knowledge, Commissioner Carr has not released the responses on this, so we don't know, you know, what the status is of this. Yeah, and that's right. Hasn't released the you know responses, and in many cases, maybe can't due to confidentiality designations or other requests made in the responses. But one of the things that it said is. This is going to be part of a series. They're planning on basically canvassing all of these non-commercial EBS licensees that are in a similar position. Now, they're not focusing on the schools that hold these types of licenses or the companies that lease the spectrum, which are companies like Sprint. Um, so there's no visibility into where we're at right now as far as where Commissioner Carr is in his investigation um, or whether or not there's any intention to eventually refer the information gathered to the Enforcement Bureau or really what the coordination has been so far with any of the other parts or, of the commission. Or even have the bureau, you know, whether the bureau has picked up this kind of, uh, you know, this broader inquiry. Because that's, I mean, that's typically what you see the Enforcement Bureau doing, right? We saw it with LED signs. There obviously were multiple investigations being conducted simultaneously, really kind of a sweep of the whole industry in a way. And, you know, this is set up by Commissioner Carr for that to happen, but it's not clear. I mean, does the commissioner and his office have enough resources to do that? Or is this really something that needs to go over to the bureau and that possibly has gone over? Mm -hmm. Or this is really, you know, again, more like gathering the information to guide the overall rulemaking into the repurposing of this type of spectrum. Right. Right. Okay. All right. And so then the, the third example, and this is really to show that this is this trend here is a is a bipartisan um, phenomenon, if you will. Um, we've got an example from Commissioner Rosenworcel as well, and and she has um, had a number of issues, but there were a number of media reports that came out about location data brokering. Um, that is data brought, um, developed or collected by your cell phone or as part of your cell phone that's available to uh, the carriers that are your cell phone carriers um, who have 
there were media reports, at least. We don't know the level of truth in, in any of this stuff, really. Um, that there was that a lot of that information had been sold to third-party data aggregators and other service providers, and they were using it in ways that, you know, arguably was would be concerning to some at least. Right. So this concerns all types of different, you know, potential issues, including targeted GPS data, which is normally reserved for facilitating enhanced 911 services, uh, what's known as CPNI, which is customer proprietary network information, as well as just privacy laws that exist. And so the the real allegation was that, okay, carriers, we understand that you're sharing or selling this data. What controls do you have afterwards that it's not being misused by the parties that you're dealing with? Because that's where you hear the reports coming from, being sold to bounty hunters or, you know, facilitating stalking. These are all concerns that Commissioner Rosenworcel raised. Right, right. And, and she made her letters public and, and made the responses public as well. That's right. And all the carriers, I mean, well, sorry, three out of the four major carriers uh, basically just said that they're done doing this type of data brokering arrangements. Um and then provided some information about how it was used in the past and why you know these types of services can be beneficial in some cases to consumers. Right, and and you know look, we haven't we haven't reached the end of this, and it's not my intent to turn this podcast over into a discussion of location data shatter, sharing. I think it's just um, it's sufficient. I think to note here that there is a lot of other interest in this um, at in Congress on this arguably or potentially in the Enforcement Bureau because of the types of things that you raised. Um, we don't know where those those things are or whether or not there's any merit to it at this point. Yeah. I mean, unlike maybe some of the more esoteric type issues like EBS licensings and their usage of uh, leasing you know, profits, um, this is something that's a very easily explainable topic to people. And I think it's going to continue to uh, you know, garner attention until actions made either at the FCC or at the FTC or in Congress or somewhere else. Right, right. Okay. So now let's look at the trend and just, you know, we've got three examples here and I, I went back and looked at this and, you know, I don't, I'm not a huge James Bond fan, but I did find this from, um, from the novel Goldfinger really sort of, sort of lays out the spies rules uh, on this sort of thing, which is one time is happenstance. Twice is a coincidence, but three times is enemy action, or in our case, at least three times is a trend, right? So we got three different examples of it. So we're seeing what I think it's it's safe to declare is a trend of these commissioners conducting things that are at least enforcement-like investigations, if not full-blown enforcement. Yeah, it shows that basically stakeholders need to be ready for the deployment of this new tool potentially against them. And so it raises all of these procedural questions because the protections and the processes for responding to a commissioner investigation remain unclear. Unlike an official letter of inquiry that, say, comes out of the Enforcement Bureau, the commissioner letters do not appear to go through sort of normal vetting channels. And as you can see, there's already this variation with what gets publicized and what doesn't get publicized and what's get, what get asked and what doesn't get asked. Um, also, unlike responding to, say, a notice of apparent liability where there's a proposed fine, there are no set procedural rules for responding to commissioner investigations. And again, we have situations where, you know, with Commissioner O'Reilly, he's setting a specific response date. So it's unclear, well, what happens if you don't respond? Right. I mean, right. there's clear rules 
in other contexts, but not so much for this. Or, or when you respond, the requested response dates have been very different in these situations. You know, are the responses, um, you know, uh, under oath? You know, is there some kind of verification that goes with these responses? Um, we don't know those types of things. Even you raise the issues of confidentiality. It's not 100% clear how a party would request or if they haven't the ability to request confidential treatment of things they might respond to an individual commissioner inquiry. Yeah, and who in the FCC would weigh in on those confidentiality requests. Right. Yeah, I mean, the important thing is, is that at the end of the day, the commissioners can't issue fines on their own. So at some point, if that is the end goal, um, which it may not be, it may be more in a name and shame context here. But if they were to take it to that level, you know, official findings of violation, you know, proposed fines, they would have to involve um, not just the enforcement bureau, but basically the the rest of the FCC. Right, right, yeah, they'd have to go through those processes. Now, obviously, you know, anything the company has said up to that point, you know, can be used against it, if you will, and uh, you need to be careful about that. But yeah, you're, I think you're right. You know, this is a lot. There's a lot to it, and you know, it's hard to say, oh. I'm going to say no to a commissioner. I'm not going to respond to this commissioner on this. Um, but the enforcement investigation, if it gets to the question of fines or other penalties, really is going to have to go over to the Enforcement Bureau. Okay. All right. And uh, that is the be- the end of our beginning. And given that that beginning was a little bit longer than than normal, what we're going to do is we're going to encourage you to Listen to part two of our enforcement podcast in which we are going to jump into all of those actions that the commission, uh, the Enforcement Bureau itself released after we recorded our last podcast. So we encourage you to jump over and listen to part two now. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff or management.